This episode of Buddhist Geeks is sponsored by Cards for Mindfulness. Cards for Mindfulness is a beautifully designed limited edition set of 54 cards that contain innovative techniques and helpful reminders to bring us back into the here and now. Cards for Mindfulness is made by our friends at Mindfulness Everywhere, the same people behind Budify. You can visit kickstarter.com or cardsformindfulness.com to receive your set and find out more. Give yourself the perfect present with Cards for Mindfulness. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Okay, welcome everybody. Buddhist Geeks Conference 2014. And we're here with my esteemed panelists. We're going to be talking about contemplative technology. And so we're going to probably talk... Uh, amongst ourselves for a little bit. I'll have some questions for them. And then we're going to open it up for questions and conversation at the end with whatever time we have left. So thank you for coming. And thank you all for being here. Uh, I think this is going to be a fun conversation. So I wanted to start first by getting some introductions from you all, You know, hearing a little bit about your background so everyone knows kind of where you're coming from in the conversation. And then I'm going to say a little bit about um, the topic, the theme why, why contemplative technology? And then we'll jump into um, some kind of visionary questions. So if, if you could, um, maybe just go around, share a bit about your background, especially as it relates to um, contemplation, technology, and science, because these are, these are the three areas we're really going to be exploring together. Um, so whatever you feel like is relevant, um, especially with those domains. Shall I start? Yeah, please, Jacob. Uh, my name is Jacob Redmond. I work for Emotive. Uh, my background is in functional neuroanatomy, stroke, traumatic brain injury, and more specifically, plasticity and subcortical structures was my favorite fascination. Um, I had the wonderful opportunity at UC Irvine to work with the Visiting Tibetan Scholars Program, where monks would come over from India and wanted to learn about psychology and cognition in the brain. And I basically just showed them graduate-level functional neuro, and they loved it. Then I had the opportunity to work at the iSpace Research Lab in Vancouver, Canada, working on a project called Lucid Space, where we're attempting to integrate the new emotive insight, the Oculus Rift, and the Leap Motion, among other um, hand control devices, to teach mindfulness-based stress reduction in a virtual reality and immersive environment. And then that led me to becoming a partner backer with Emotive, which is how I met the company and got the opportunity to meet Tan Lee. And I was just so inspired by her vision and how much she loves and cares for the people that work for her that my PhD advisor just handed me to the company and said, here, you should go work for them. And so now here I am, and it's, it's kind of surreal. Um, and then the, the first project that they had me look at was data for a Chopra study, where we looked at novice and experienced meditators in relation to heart rate variability. And um, we're really excited about that coming up for publication. So, great. So you can see we've got plenty of geek here on the uh, on the panel. <laughs> Catherine, please. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Catherine McLean. I just flew in from the East Coast. I'm most recently uh, working at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, uh, but I kind of got pulled into the meditation field through my graduate studies at UC Davis, where I was one of the early researchers on the Shamada project, which at the time, it kind of seems standard now, but it was one of the first types of studies to really look at intensive meditation training in Westerners. And I lived at um, Shambhala Mountain Center in Colorado for about three, four months in 2007, wiring people up every single day in labs that we built at the retreat center while they meditated every single day. And that was kind of the last truly immersive experience I've had in the world of kind of technology. And we measured EEG and heart rate variability and all sorts of other measures while people were doing tasks. Um, in general, though, I'm kind of a Luddite. So <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of been thrown into the technology waters with people who know way more about all of this stuff than I do. Um, I've been practicing meditation for about 10 years. 
I still consider myself not a very good meditator. I like totally lack discipline, but I love it. Um, most recently, I've been studying a form of consciousness inspired by psychedelic medicine. And at Hopkins, we were studying psilocybin, which is the chemical found in some types of mushrooms. Um, so you could kind of argue that psychedelics were one of the first consciousness hacking tools. And now they're kind of coming together with all these other really modern tools. And I think it's exciting. Nice. And we really wanted to invite you because you have that very interesting background with psychedelics and meditation in the research labs. And I think that's uh, really relevant to, to this conversation. So thank you. Mikey. Hey. <laughs> so my name is Mikey Siegel. And my background is maybe a little more out of left field. Um, actually, I did my, my graduate work in robotics. Um, but the way that it, that it ties in is actually the focus of my work was around this space called human-robot interaction and really looking at social robots and even more specifically the way that uh, robots influence human belief and behavior. So my thesis work was actually around persuasive robotics. And uh, after I finished graduate school and I was sort of in the what the hell am I going to do next mode, um, I ended up on a contemplative path and did some retreat work and got into meditation and my own practice and um, started to actually see a connection emerging between the two things and realizing that my background in thinking about the way in which technology can influence people and thinking about different types of relationships that people can have with technology actually applied to thinking about how technology could actually be used as a tool or conduit or a catalyst for the contemplative path. And even beyond that, the deeper realization that drives me is that these things aren't black and white. It's actually quite continuous. And the traditional tools that we use are actually forms of technology. They're human creations and human inventions. And so when I think of the future of uh, contemplative technology, actually things that run on electricity, for me it's actually just a natural extension of what's already happening. And so what I'm doing now is um, working on a number of different projects, so actually building stuff and working with people to create new technologies that can deeply uh, influence human experience. I'm also um, organizing a group called the Consciousness Hacking Meetup Group, which has a few locations in Northern California, uh, and also just started a research lab called the Transformative Technology Research Lab at Sofia University in Palo Alto. So that's kind of the stuff I'm into. Great. Thank you, Mikey. And finally, Nima. I didn't know the last bit. That's oh. cool. <laughs> Thank you. Um, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Nima, and my background is in computer science. Uh, and during my computer science training, I ended up backpacking around India and took a Vipassana retreat. Uh, just kind of stumbled. it just curious. And um, that led me down a contemplative path. I did a, a bunch of those retreats and just kind of, you know, like like many of us here, if not all of us, uh, have cultivated that retreat in my life and trying to integrate that into my work in some way. So I ended up from computer science studying human-computer interaction in general. And specifically, I did a PhD topic where I was able to kind of say, okay, well, what do I want to do? And I ended up uh, coming up with this idea that technology could augment our ability to self-regulate, which is kind of like a way of saying mindfulness. And um, I figured that the, I surveyed kind of all the physiological indicators that would be most useful for my purposes and found that the breath was uh, very powerful, very illustrative and actionable. So I did the first experiments actually showing someone's breath on their phone, on their desktop in real time and uh, took that research and formed a lab at Stanford called the Calming Technology Lab, which wasn't actually about relaxation technologies, but about calming technologies. And, and we know the distinction there. It's really about a, a lack of anxiety and calm presence and how technology could do that for us. So I taught a number of classes at Stanford, had a lot of different students creating a lot of different prototypes around it. Uh, and during that experience, felt that it was my duty and my aspiration to take the one of those that I felt was most powerful and 
bring it out into the world and into people's hands. And so that became a road that I'm on now, uh, bringing Spire out in, uh, and uh, we're going to be shipping in a few weeks. So it's almost at the point where it's in people's hands. So that's my background. Nice. Thank you. Great. So now you have a sense of why um, these folks are here to talk about contemplative technology because they've really been at the forefront in many ways um, of what's kind of an emerging field, I'd say. Um, in fact, it's so emerging that the term contemplative technology is really just one way of, of describing a broader field. There's calming technology, transformative technologies, mindful technologies, meditation technologies, spiritual te- You know, There's so many different ways of talking about this broader field that's emerging. But um, the contemplative part, I think, is of real kind of importance and significance within the Buddhist framework, obviously. And uh, the reason I'm using that term for this conversation is because um, I was really inspired by the mind and life dialogues, you know, the conversations between uh, Tibetan Buddhists, in particular the Dalai Lama and scientists, and the whole field that emerged out of that dialogue was called contemplative science. Um, so it seemed like a natural thing to 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 realize that okay, once we have a a growing body of science that describes what happens in different uh, contemplative practices, that that is going to then naturally lead to applications of that science, which is engineering and is technology. So that's a big reason that um, that that I'm sort of referring to to contemplative technology in this conversation. And the other thing I'd say is. You know, when when we've been reflecting on what this is, uh, in particular, Mikey uh, and and a fellow named Robin, who's here doing the Sound Self uh, virtual reality meditation game, uh, we we sort of agreed that there were at least three areas that were really important that are converging in this field. Um, you know, with contemplative science, it was contemplation and science, um, but with technology, now we're adding this other third piece of technology of engineering of creating. And so it's really these three areas that are kind of coming together, converging, um, meeting each other, learning from each other, that are in some sense producing these new tools, like the ones that are displayed here and that are coming out, you know, in, in the case of Spire in a few weeks. Um, so it's, it's a really exciting time. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's so many more of these technologies coming out, both software and hardware. So we're kind of in some ways, at the, it feels like at the crest or the beginning, not a crest, but the beginning of a wave, of some sort of wave. So we're, we're really here to explore that wave and to kind of explore what, what, where might it go, um, what are the things we need to be thinking about. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to see what's coming, but it's fun to consider the possibilities. Hard to imagine what's next. Yeah. So I, I wanted to kick this off by asking each of you the same question. And, and getting a kind of different perspective on this um, because you each have different backgrounds. So I want to imagine that it's 10 years from now. So we're at the Buddhist Geeks Conference 10 years from now, hanging out, reflecting on what's happened. And let's imagine that in that 10 years, really the field has developed in ways that were pretty mind-blowing and remarkable. It's It's been like best case scenario in your minds. So in that best case 10 year scenario of contemplative technology looking back what 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 do you see you know what what's happened what do you imagine might be possible um what do you hope might be possible and and maybe we could just um each respond to that and then uh go from there and and you can whoever wants to go feel free i think it's going to be mikey <laughs> <laughs> Before, so since I don't know anything about really the field as it is, I want to see, okay, the two things that popped up for me. One, I imagined taking a pill that could scan all of my physiology all the way down through my gut sure. and then tell me what practices would be best for me on that given day. And the reason I said gut is because I think there's just all this really cool stuff happening well below. Like we've kind of gone from here. Now we're down to the like this area, you know, like heart rate, breathing, and how cool would it be if we could kind of incorporate the whole body system along with the central nervous system? Well, that gets to the whole quantitative self, the quantified self, and being able to recognize a more holistic approach to our bodies and our nutrition, our mental and cognitive health, all of it coming combined together. You guys bring up two things. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay, we're already (laughs) off. Well, one is um, the... um, 
the idea of technology facilitating or augmenting traditional approach or practice, and two, quantified self, which I think are both really interesting things and I think are both current prevalent concepts and I think are things that are ripe for evolving beyond. Um, Not in opposition to, but in a natural way. It's a type of symbiosis. Yeah, and so the the thoughts are, one, in terms of, um, right now, I think the role of technology, I guess I'll just answer the 10-year question (laughs) (laughs) so we don't get too crazy. At at some point, let's, uh, we'll try to loop back to that. Okay. I think already these, some of the interesting themes are coming up, so go ahead. Um, So, um, I think that um, the, so, so imagining, kind of putting that on pause, the, um, the, the 10 year looking out vision, um, I think is where suffering, human suffering is optional in the same way that many diseases today are optional. And we have developed many interventions, many approaches, many ways to um, eradicate certain diseases from the face of the earth. And I think that um, broadly speaking, we can do the same way with human suffering. I think another way of saying it is that we can open up and make more accessible the space of desirable human experience and to use technology in a way to facilitate that. But in terms of how we get there, I think that the, big question. that the nature of what we think of as practice will have to f- probably very significantly evolve and change. Um, and so that's, that's in a sense that, that the, the tools we use may in no way resemble what we think of as practice now, what we think of as traditional practice. It could evolve and change in a way that's no longer recognizable. And in terms of quantification, I think that um, the quantified self space is so centered around this pattern we have of developing technology as a manifestation of the current state of our minds, which is around thought and ideas and concepts. But actually, I think there's a whole space of technologies, which we even see examples of here, that can skip quantification altogether and can lead you directly to experience. So so you're saying 10 years out, you see human suffering being optional? Uh, Okay. All right. right, right. That sounded like very optimistic. Mr. (laughs) Details over there. All right. So. I'm all for it. Don't get me wrong. If you've got a a marked out plan, I'm right with you. You can talk numbers here. Um, So the, the, that's the end goal. Um, And so um, that's some number of years out. So the the 10 year mark is, um, you know, 22.5% 22.5% of the way there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Actually, just jumping off that, um, I like the idea of looking at what's happened in the past and then applying uh, contemplative science to that. Uh, if you take obesity or physical fitness and use that as an analogy for, I don't know, mental fitness or whatever we're contemplation in in a sense. Um, uh, You know, we have a ton of tools, a ton of science, a ton of literature, motivation, programs. We have all types of stuff. That doesn't mean that it solves the problem. It's worse now in in some ways. In some ways it's worse um, uh, because for a person who, you know, is trying and doesn't seem to be able to, then it's kind of like supposedly their fault. Because oh, there's all these tools, mm-hmm. so that it can be, it can be made to seem that way. Um, I I think that uh, ten years from now, we will have more external manifestations of potential solutions. Um, but as we all know, as we ha- we live in that world now, the problem doesn't become information access it becomes wisdom in a sense it becomes application it becomes being it becomes in a sense wading through the storm so just like the way facebook has taught us the value of real relationships by contrast (laughs) was i supposed to have learned that by now okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's choice um that these these technologies will will do the same 
you know. So 10 years from now, there will be people that are completely hooked up with everything, including Spire and including Emotive and all the stuff times 10. And there will be the woman in the park that's just kind of totally, you know, okay, not necessarily meditating all the time because that's, that's just, that's another abstraction that we chase after, but, but is, is present and is being and is fully engaged in life and, and love and their, their life without the tools too and vice versa. So. And I, I think that's really what it's all about is getting the tools into the hands of individuals who want them. The biofeedback in and of itself, watching people meditate here has just been marvelous to give them a real-time metric so that they can, so that they can see how it's affecting them. I think over the next 10 years, as, as mass adoption of these sorts of technologies occur, we're going to see 12-year-olds take off with this in a way that we just can't even imagine yet. I, I see that being the major mass adoption right there. Kids with neurogaming and, and their, their ability to be able to explore online. We have, we have more autodidacts than could have possibly imagined you know, before this time frame. You know, kid, I, I grew up in a time without Wikipedia and Google. And I think of just how, I don't want to say spoiled, but certainly much more convenient for them to be able to get access to information. So I think that the younger generations are going to do things with this technology over the next decade that are just pretty honestly beyond my imagination. Uh, and I like that. I like that excitement of it, of seeing where they're going to take it. We're going to be... Uh missing the days when we could just meditate (laughs) (laughs) just sit down and be quiet (laughs) we'll be pining for the good old days days. one one thing i'm curious about i I throw this out as one thing i'm hoping happens in the next 10 years is i'm kind of looking for functional telepathy in terms of being able to share states of mind i was mind. just thinking that <laughs> <laughs> we're there yeah maybe maybe we already are there um <laughs> good point thanks we're to the implants <laughs> someone was just asking me when are we going to have implants i said I, you know give me unlimited resources i get it to you in a year but i'm not sure that we'll be able to sell them on the market I think that's, there's one of the big questions I have about the next 10 years. Like you were talking about yesterday with um, all the mindfulness, all the money that's been put into mindfulness. And I don't want to say dump, but it's been invested because we see all of these benefits of it, um, you know, health and longevity and stress, lowering cortisol levels, using in cancer treatment, all these different benefits. And I see that that, that level of investment, imagine how that's going to happen with contemplative technologies over the next 10 years. Because now that we know that those benefits are there, I mean, there are insurance companies currently reimbursing um, MBSR. I think it's just it's fascinating to see how that momentum's going to take off, and hopefully we'll get telepathy out of it soon. I really that would be nice. I mean, I didn't want just telepathy with humans. I was assuming that we would have already contacted something out there. Well, I'd love to talk to dogs. That would be really cool. Dogs too. Yeah, I want to get one of the head like make a headset for dogs really bad. You know, even if it's just bark. <laughs> so it's just starting to sound like our lunch conversation. <laughs> Okay, interesting. So, I mean, w- one of the reasons I think about the telepathy piece is is simply because human relationships are so critical. And I think sometimes when I think of technology, I think of myself sort of being in a room by myself with a you know with a device strapped to my head or whatever. But really, every technology we have is also social. It's it's got social component to it. So it's not just going to be us jacking in to meditate or have an enhanced neurofeedback experience, but it could also be a kind of collective meditation experience or a way of sharing each, uh, states with each other. I mean, I think the um, EEG you know, challenge that we're doing here this weekend, in some ways, it's, it's a way of, it's a social experiment yeah, to yeah. see what is it like yeah. to share. How, how do our brains compare? Yeah. How do we, you know, there, there's a competitive component to it, which can bring up a lot of interesting stuff. Um, but there's also a sense of, of being able to see each other meditate. And, and that's something that med- because of the nature of meditation, it's so personal. It is, and I think I think we're going to see an adoption happen with these technologies in a way that was not possible before because of the unobtrusive nature of it. This is something you can you can wear at home. These these wearables are things that you can do in the privacy of your own home, and there's no sort of um, uh, misconception or, or you know stigma attached. I think that that's going to be a big leap. Cool. Anything else in the next ten years? I mean, we didn't get very specific, which is probably smart. Oh no, it was just. The pill that can like analyze the whole physiology, and I think the output for most people would be work less, play more. So even if that's just like a revolution in itself, and someone has to take a pill to monitor to tell them to stop working so much, yay! Um, 
and then telepathy and alien intelligence. That's it. <laughs> That's all I want in 10 years. This, the psychedelics the researcher, of course. Uh. <laughs> can, I, can I talk about the, what you were talking about before? The, Please. So, the, yeah, so, yeah. I, sort of, I was thinking of you when I said that. Oh, <laughs> I was thinking of me too. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we're psychically connected. Um, so, so I think that this is a really interesting space of exploration specifically with regard to technology. Actually, um, it's, um, this has been one of my areas of interest. The last couple projects I did actually revolved around using technology specifically as a way to increase human connection, not in the way that you see online now in the social networks and Twitter feeds and this space. It's largely relationship based on information and content text and graphs and pictures and this kind of thing. And um, it has its own value and it's interesting and engaging in its own way. But really, if we think about some of the most meaningful, important and memorable connections that we've had in our lives, these are things that really have nothing to do with information. They're about a moment of vulnerability or intimacy that we share with someone, a moment of true, deep connection that we have. And I think that um, we certainly don't need a technology to do these things, but technology as something that we can morph or mold into any shape that we want can be used to augment that or facilitate it in a world where right now it's being steered away from in our current technological landscape. So for example, <laughs> um, a project that actually I recently brought to um, Burning Man um, is this um, pod. It's about eight feet long and looks like a big cocoon and uh, opens from the middle like a clamshell. Two people sit inside and then it closes over them. It's the, they're in this sort of personal two-person two space. And um, each person can feel the other person's heartbeat directly measured from their body, the electrical signal of the heart directly converted into sound, vibrating their body through a personal subwoofer. And each person can see and hear the other person's breath as sound and light filling the space. So I can see this other person's breath as a halo of light around them with each inhalation and exhalation and ocean sounds with each inhalation and exhalation. And there's no winning and there's no losing and there's no charts and there's no graphs and there's no text and there's no score. Um, <laughs> it's just the experience which has no beginning and no end. It's just a space to share with two people. And I think that technology can also be pointing in that direction. So cool, and I wish you had just told me that before I decided not to go to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? That's, that's because what I'm if I knew there was this Halo heartbeat love pod, <laughs> you, you, you should have been watching your Facebook feed. <laughs> ah, how cool! That's why everyone had such a good time this year. Yeah, for all I was like, wondering what it was for all 18 people that had time to actually do the 20 minute experience of uh, yeah. Did you ever let anyone augment their consciousness before getting in? I'm not sure that anyone whose consciousness was not augmented came inside, <laughs> which is kind of an easy audience to deal with. You could also have like, a picture of a unicorn, and they'd be like, whoa! <laughs> but um, still, I think... Uh, I did bring it to a conference last weekend with Robin, and it was a great... At a gaming conference, of all things. And it was incredibly successful there, which I was worried about. And people totally... Just loved which, it which and dug into it. Indie, Indiecade, which is oh, an indie yeah. gaming conference. Right on. Yeah. Nice. And uh, <laughs> I, I can attest at least for the heartbeat part because I, I felt your heartbeat. You showed me the prototype oh. and it was uh, pretty incredible just to, um, just to connect with someone at that I level. I felt your heartbeat. It's I just felt your heartbeat. Phrase. So, okay, I've got a couple specific questions because I know each of you have kind of different backgrounds. And uh, Nima, I want to start with you because you mentioned the breath and that that was. The, the place you honed in on in your research and then also you've kind of uh, focused spire around. And, um, you know, when I think of all these different sensors, you know, the EEG sensors and breath sensors and heart rate variability and all these things, I mean, there's such a diff there's so many different ways of kind of starting to measure um, our bodies. Why the breath? Why is that such a, a big focus for you? Because it, it's clearly an important part of many contemplative traditions, especially the Indian and um, Buddhist traditions. Um. And not only that, I mean, in my research, I mean, poets from pretty much every culture talk about the breath. But, um, okay, so I was thinking about what I was going to say to this audience about the breath. I mean, you guys could teach me about the breath. 
Uh, and I, I learned something recently that I wanted to share. So uh, apes and monkeys don't have conscious control over their breath. Okay. On the flip side, dolphins and whales don't have subconscious control over their breath. Every breath they take is completely intentional. They have to time it, surface, and do that whole thing. So, and we are like smack in the middle. And that is why I chose the breath. It was a great kind of uh, explanation. I chose the breath because it's, it's always available, instantly actionable. You don't need to be trained to do it. It's non-judgmental. And you can do it while you're doing other things. Because in, the, in, in, in daily life, we have jobs, we have, we're at the computer, we're in traffic, we're at Starbucks, whatever, and it's always there. Turns out that though we all have experienced it, and I encourage you next on your next meditation, like go in and, and, and try to observe when your body decides you need an inhalation and when it, need, when it decides it needs an exhalation um, based in relationship with what's your state of mind, what thoughts are happening at that time. I used to think that they were totally independent, but um, just with my own experience and study is that they are, there's a beautiful, elegant, there's uh, an elegant relationship. And I, 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 those are the reasons that we chose the breath. So you can you can say something about the state of the mind. You can do something about this. You can influence the state of mind all with it. You can show it to anybody, and it, you know we have it in our vernacular. Take a deep breath. You know, are you holding your breath? So, and that's a big part of, of Spire is um, very hardcore and non-judgmental. You know, um, and that means that you know we don't we don't say that e even that you're stressed. We don't say that because there's so much baggage with that. We don't say that, you know, meditation. You can use all these things. So you can use your breath for anything. But um, we're just kind of trying to be really humble about it and just take the breath, something that we all don't. And this is actually another thing is that you don't need a sensor to, to observe your breath. And that's core um, to the experience is that you're cultivating your own your own ability, your own sixth sense, our own sense, this, this sixth sense. And, and this is a tool that helps us, just like counting rosaries, just like a meditation, just like books, teachings, all that kind of stuff. So those are the reasons. Great. Thank you. That's really interesting. Okay, Catherine, I've got one for you. So you've been obviously involved in the Shamatha Project. You were there for four months doing all these measurements. You saw kind of some of the, the science of meditation, basically, you know, real time as it's emerging. You've also been involved with, it's maybe the only or one of the few psychedelic research programs at a well-recognized university. So no, it's one of, I think, there are only two, no, three places in the entire country that are, you know, being, the psychedelic program is being run by a faculty member at a major medical institution. There might be a fourth soon. There's one in London, one in Switzerland. And then there's kind of a sprinkling of small clinical trials run by MAPS, but they're more focused on MDMA for post-traumatic stress. So when you're talking about psychedelics, it is, yeah, it's literally a handful of places in the entire world that are really doing these programs. And in particular, you're, you're working with folks, um, I mean, a variety of folks, but some of the folks you're working with are, are, are meditators. Some of them are meditators, and actually 75 of them now are new meditators because we taught them meditation as we gave them psilocybin. So we're kind of doing this, we're inviting people into both worlds at once, which I think is really cool. You know, right now, in kind of the natural sampling, we have people, a lot of people who took psychedelics first, they're kind of, their minds broke open, their hearts broke open, and then they found the practice of meditation or other spiritual paths. That's a pretty standard story, and some people keep the psychedelics along occasionally. Some people discard them after a while. 
Um, and then you have people who got straight into meditation or a spiritual path. And then kind of later on are saying, oh, I've heard about these um, sacraments or old shamanic medicines, or maybe I've seen some press reports of the psilocybin research. And so they kind of come to us or other people interested. Um, but with this group of 75 people, it was a sponsored study to teach people meditation for the first time and give them psilocybin for the first time. And we actually got to see what happens over six months as both of those processes are happening. Cool. So my, my, my question for you is, you know, given what you've seen with that and given, you know, your background with research, could you see any ways in which that kind of the beginnings of psychedelic research might have an impact on some of these technologies as they develop? Because in some ways, psychedelics, you could consider them like original contemplative technologies, you know, in a way. And I know Buddhism doesn't really have a rich history of, of those kind of mind-altering substances, but, but you can f- sort of find them in some places. Um, it seems like meditation was more the, the psychedelic tool. But uh, maybe if you could share a bit on your, on your thoughts on that. Yeah. One little aside that I can't go away without saying is I've now heard from kind of it's one of those a person that I really respect who's a respected scholar learned from his teacher kind of thing. So it's still one degree of separation. But if you really probe, there are um, unbroken lineages of Tibetan practitioners who do admit that there were psychedelic drugs that were used as part of contemplative training. It was esoteric and it was very protected because it could easily kind of get out of control and people could misunderstand it, especially alongside other intoxicants like alcohol and cannabis. So there's that little piece that you can kind of remember. If you don't remember anything else, I say the kind of the standard story about there's no place for these chemicals in Buddhism, I don't even think has a historical precedent. It's been there since the beginning. It's been in most cultures since the beginning, Um, but usually always kind of off to the side or hidden. And that's kind of one of the most powerful parts of psychedelics is how they manage to stay in cultures in this kind of hidden way. So that's one thing. Um, What's the second piece? How could you see that? How do you see this potentially impacting the development of contemplative tech? I'm going to talk about this in more depth tomorrow, but in case you can't be here tomorrow, I'll kind of give you my little pitch about how I feel that psychedelics help people uh, occupy and get familiar with the present moment. And what I mean about that is that in meditation, you can be sitting in one spot, not moving, kind of trying to get in the present moment. And with all of that trying, it's elusive. And you can't really understand what a teacher is saying about be here now. And what I've seen with especially high doses of psilocybin, it kind of kicks the ego out the door. It says, thank you very much. You're very helpful. You're also kind of a pain in the ass. And we're going to just ask you to leave the room. And the psilocybin kind of does its work. And with the ego out of the room, all of a sudden, people get to experience the spaciousness of the present moment. And the present moment is amazing. I know a lot of you have experienced it. I've experienced it. You don't need any drug to show you what it's like. But for people who are just starting out, or even people who have been meditating a really long time, something like psilocybin can help them all of a sudden understand the teaching from the inside out. And it's a direct experience. And it's more powerful than hearing it from a teacher, or I think it's more powerful than learning it over many years because there's less room for error. You know, you're not getting attached to something outside of yourself. Once the chemical is in your body, and this is the other funny thing, people don't attribute their understanding and enlightenment, you can call it enlightenment, even if it's temporary, on psilocybin to the drug. Almost always people come out of it saying it was something in me that this chemical activated or helped me to see or revealed. So with these technologies, I think it would be great if under conditions of support and kind of safe legal methods, people could take psilocybin and we could somehow record what the kind of the body and the mind are doing in the brain while someone is saying, yeah, bingo, that's it. I'm here. I'm here now. There's no past, no future, no self. And then if we can kind of get a profile of what that looks like and then feed it back to people later so that maybe all they need is one exposure to psilocybin. And then with the technology, they can kind of keep being reminded. They don't have to go back to the drug. And I'm not saying that in a pejorative sense. You know, there are cultures that use things like psilocybin regularly. And for the most part, people who use these substances regularly look way healthier than people who don't, as long as it's accepted in the culture. So it's not a a bad thing to need to use the drug regularly. 
but how cool would it be for someone who doesn't want to use it regularly and has a technology, and we just kind of link them up, and people are on their way. <laughs> I think what's interesting about that is people are already doing it, and it's not socially accepted for them to be able to share that data. I, I've had individuals confide in me uh, numerous times. You know, I, I, that they're recording their brainwaves during mushrooms and, and other activities. <laughs> I, you know, people share these things. No one on this panel, I'm sure. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, well, I, you know, I leave no evidence. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so, no. <laughs> but I think it's as, as, these, as these sorts of ancient practices become more socially acceptable, and that's the dissemination of information right there, people are often afraid of things or, or scared of things that they don't understand. And knowledge is very much key into, into that social order. And I think we're seeing a beautiful integration of, of different, uh, not just de- technologies, but also different cultures. As East has met West, that, that line is beginning to blur much more, and, which I love. Yeah. Um, and I think that as these things become, as people have open and honest conversations about these topics in, in, a, uh, in, in a responsible way, with mindfulness of the responsibility they're taking on by sharing information about them, I believe that we're going to see uh, a much more openness about it and, and being able to bring technology into that, into that uh, sphere of influence and, and get more insights. I feel, I feel like there's so much to say now that we've opened the can on the psychedelic piece, um, especially in a Buddhist kind of container, because you know, some of what Noah talked about this morning is a very different approach uh, t- to uh, mind-altering substances. Um, and I, I guess I just want to say one thing which is you know these technologies and i think part of the reason we're, we're bringing psychedelics in is these technologies one of my friends used the term technodelics potentially have the uh they might have the impact of being able to create the same kind of deep altered state experiences and glimpses um not through ingesting uh, a substance but through external sensory input you know if you spent any time in the oculus rift and virtual reality headsets it's really easy to see how you could create a completely immersive visual experience that would mirror a psychedelic hey, experience you guys did it with your opening animation that's true that was i mean that's psilocybin minus the body part i mean psilocybin i feel like and psychedelic especially the word triggers so many reactions for people and yes, there are stories of people leaping off of buildings, usually when it's psychedelics plus alcohol or psychedelics plus organic mental illness. There are these stories and they're scary. And, you know, no parent wants their child to take a psychedelic when they're not ready and then find themselves in trouble. Um, it also brings up all sorts of fears that our culture has around death and transcendence. And what would it mean to live a life where you really aren't scared to die? Um, these are all like big, big questions. Um, ultimately I think meditation leads people down the same path of realization. And what Noah said is true. Mindfulness and meditation are revolutionary tools. And in one sense, the current mindfulness movement is kind of moving in the direction of making people more obedient citizens. You know, we're more calm. We are able to pay attention. We're able to do our jobs really efficiently. We're able to take care of our families and raise the next generation. But ultimately they are really kind of destructive and creative tools and they're totally radical. And so in that sense, I don't see any difference between psychedelics and meditation when it's practiced with the intent to really open ourselves up to the true nature of reality. Now the true nature of reality, maybe it's not what we want it to be. Maybe it's completely different than anything we can imagine. At least psychedelics approximate that for people. To kind of take the box that you're kind of living in and just blow it open. And then, of course, the box comes back, but it's just a little bit more fluid. I think it was uh, Terrence McKenna who said, you know, the only difference between drugs and computers is you can swallow drugs. Um, <laughs> and he said, and that's going to change pretty quickly. Yeah, that's happening now. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, it's really helpful to have this conversation to talk about um, some of these substances because we could be living you know, 10 years in the future where it's socially acceptable to strap on a device that, that does something like that. Um, and we have to deal with the ramifications. I have one little final qualifier. So I completely agree with Noah about alcohol. I think alcohol is one of the most destructive things that has happened in the course of human history. It's become so standard. Um, it dulls you. It makes you, it actually intoxicates the mind. 
away from awakening. So I, I agree that there may be a place for the precepts in terms of particular types of intoxicants. And in all of the cultures where psychedelics have been used, they are not considered anything even remotely in the category of something like alcohol. They're considered sacraments, healing potential, medicine, um, interacting with spirits, helping people die. So it, when you kind of hear, it's, if this is the first time you're hearing these words, it may seem like, oh, well, all these things are kind of lumped together. And I'm just kind of trying to discern that for you all in my mind, that they're very different categories. Um, and I think sobriety is also an amazing tool. So I don't, there's not really a conflict for me. Um, but with both the psychedelics and technology, when people are really suffering, I really hope that we get to a point where we have something better to offer them than you just need to sit still for 10 years. I think we need to figure out a way to meet people where they're at and help them much, much faster. And it's imperative. I mean, the world is a really kind of fucked up and scary place now. Maybe it always has been, but it seems particularly screwed up right now. And maybe there is more of an urgency. So, All right. Thank you. Any other thoughts here before we kind of open it up? I'll throw out a thought, which could be another conversation topic. But yeah, um, it seems like there's a shift from what you're saying. There's um, probably a, a cautionary um, feeling that comes up in people in the audience. And I know myself. And I think the same thing can be true in the way that we imagine the future of technology, which is um, how do we relate to it? Is it sort of a crutch-like relationship, or is it more of like a teach a person to fish, you know, and then they can eat forever kind of relationship? And um, I think that one of the appealing things about meditation, but also perhaps one of the things that makes it so difficult, is that it really it does meet that standard of, of being something that's very sustainable um, and something that can be incorporated into a lifelong practice in a, in a healthy way. Um, but I... But it still has its challenges, certainly. You could probably find examples of meditation addiction, as you can in any other space. Um, but I think that that, uh, that caution and that question also comes up in terms of how we would relate to psychedelics and incorporate psychedelics into our lives if it becomes more common. And as technology becomes more powerful, how do we relate to that technology how do we incorporate it into our lives? I think I think that's a really big question, and uh, maybe, maybe before we open it up for questions, I, I'd throw out a model that I found from Shinzen Young. He's one of the few um, meditation teachers who's actively kind of exploring this question: How do you integrate these? Uh, he calls them techno boosts. How do you, how would you integrate this techno boost into uh, a genuine contemplative path? And and he throws out a simple model, which is: You have the techno boost, you have practices, and you have ideas. And that those three things go together, um, and I, I would sort of add: you, you also have community. You have peers and 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 mentors and people that you support. Um, but you know, it seems like the experience by itself. You know, to, to go back to the to the unbundling metaphor. You know, if you just pull this powerful experience out without the the right set and setting, without the context, without a, a way to kind of deepen or or unpack whatever that experience was, uh, it, it seems like it could really easily become something that just is disconnected from my reality or something that's hard to integrate um, and make, some, make meaningful in a kind of day-to-day -day way as I'm sitting and talking with people, whatever. You know, this, what this reminds me of is, because you were talking about alcohol and the negativity associated, I see that limiter as the same kind of limiter that's being placed on any sort of drugs. And the same kind of limiter that I see in cognitive and mental health issues with the stigmas attached to it. I think that each human being is in their own unique way dealing with whatever trauma, whatever past that they've had to deal with. And I, I experienced this at the Science Hack Day, this wonderful event in San Francisco where they give you an open bar and plenty of food and tons of tech to play with. And we run around with chemists and astrophysicists and just play. And that experience taught me that given unlimited resources and giving the freedom to do whatever you want with your own body and mind, there is just no limit to what people can create. And I think that placing, it's that whole stigma is a big blocker, I think. Mm. You know, people need to have the freedom to openly discuss and openly experience their own reality however they choose without being free of judgment for it on both a social and personal level. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's my own personal 
opinion, man. <laughs> oh no, totally. No, yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with you. It does. It numbs, it numbs the frontal lobe and whatnot. And the thing with you know, nicotine is a terrible addiction, which we were just talking at lunch. I just quit a week ago. I'm a week without Ooh. cigarettes. Very happy about that. Um, thank you. Um, but I, I, I really do feel passionately that people, people should have the freedom to do what they want with their bodies, and that we should be able to have open discussions about it. Awesome. More freedom. Freedom, <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, uh, I think ethics is 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 a big question here. You know, huge it, for me um, because what you're bringing up is an ethical question, and and then I think the other side of that um, stigma is related to the destructive potential we have, Absolutely. you know, with each other, um, and and just how easy it is to get <laughs> addicted to certain states of consciousness. Research that shows that virtual reality is going to be extremely addictive. Oh, I can it, tell already. Two days with the rift, and I was already wanting to right? just is, be fully immersed. These are these are the biggest things that we need to be taking into consideration over the next decade. Is how is this going to affect? How are these technologies going to impact? Not just the youth, not just us, but the, our, our elders as well. What kind of impact are these things going to have on everyone, both socially, mentally, in, in every way? I think it needs to be considered. It's a real responsibility that we. Pay attention to it as we move forward. Or to flip that question around, not what impact are these technologies going to have, what impact do we want, and how do we build technologies to realize that? How do we nurture that entire process? That is key. What's the the old saying? uh, The best way to predict the future is to be a part of creating it. And I think that's, that's, that's a good philosophy for me personally as we move forward. Anything else? <laughs> it feels like we're kind of moving now into the, I guess you call it the shadow elements of, mm. of these technologies. We started with, you know, yeah. kind of the upsides, and now I think the downsides are, are kind of revealing themselves a bit. Well, I think a lot of people talk about how the technology amplifies human consciousness, collective consciousness in different ways. So media right now is like that there's media for whatever your appetite is there's a whole thing for that and so um the same is true with apps the same is true with technologies and it's going to continue to be true so it's just manifestations of whatever's going on i don't and it's never going to go to one place you know that's like it's just not going to happen it shouldn't happen it's diversity it's a garden it's a city like Burning Man is a good example. People say like, oh, like Burning Man is this way, is it that way, is it this way. It's like, it's a city. It's like, it's whatever people bring to it. Just like this city. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.